king. And today we stand before you, want to listen to you. I pray that God, you'll keep us alert, awake, so that God, you have a word that deposit on our hearts that we will respond to you. Oh Lord, Father, I pray for your anointing upon the elders Shing here, Father. I say, bring forth your word again. I pray for your strength, for his voice, to be able to share it clearly. And I pray also your spirit to work through him. Anoint him, empower him. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, everyone. Morning. <clears throat> I think all of us recognize that we are in the midst of a global crisis. I mean, all our lives have been disrupted in some way uh, or another. I mean, you know, the fact that we have to not shake hands, come with our temperatures, uh, and so on, uh, is a disruption uh, of a life. And let me begin then with uh, a quote from Pastor Benny Ho's Facebook. He says, as Christians, if we respond to this crisis correctly, it can turn out to be a defining moment of discipleship. I think it was not a coincidence that Senior Pastor started it off this year with a call to return to authentic discipleship. I think Chiming just now mentioned also about this shaking. I think this was also discerned by the leaders during the retreat just a few months before uh, the start of this crisis. I think it was not so much a revelation to us to prepare for this crisis. I think it was more to reveal to us so that we will not waste this crisis. Because we know that God is in control. And God is the one who has revealed this. I don't know why to us. But I, I think this is one of the other things that came out of the retreat was that there are opportunities. And the opportunity that we have apart from serving others, living out our faith, is the opportunity to really re-examine our lives and our faith. So if we are to respond to this crisis correctly, then we must examine ourselves. And to quote Pastor Benny Ho again, we examine the condition of our heart and the direction of our life. He says, in this crisis, when so many are asking how to stay alive, the real question we should be asking is, what are we living for? It's time for us to check if we are truly living for what truly matters. So in a sense, this crisis is our wake-up call as a church. Not only a church here in PPH, but as a church worldwide. Catholic Church, as in Universal Church. We want to wake up to the fact that perhaps we have been complacent in living out our faith. That to some degree, perhaps, we have been marching more to the drumbeat of this world rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that perhaps our values and our priorities are more temporal than eternal. Well, the church at Sardis had a wake-up call and it came in the form of a letter, a letter from Jesus Christ himself. First, let me give you some background to the city of Sardis. The city of Sardis was a very wealthy city. It was situated very strategically along trade routes and it has rich natural resources, including gold. It could it had gold in one of its rivers. So they don't have enough gold, they just go to the river. And this picture also shows the location of the fortified city of Sardis. It's located up on a cliff with 90-degree walls surrounding it, except for a small path up the city. 
So, it is very easy to defend against enemy attacks. In fact, the city of Sardis thought they were impervious to attacks. But unfortunately for this city, its wealth and its strategic location led to a false sense of security. And they were complacent in defending the city. It literally fell asleep in the midst of imminent danger. The city was conquered two times. Both times, the same way, the sentry on guard duty fell asleep, thinking that the city was impervious to attacks. I mean, why do you need to guard something when there's no way the enemy could have come up? But what the enemy did was it sent a couple of skilled wall climbers up the cliffs. And when everyone was asleep, they just went and opened the doors and let the enemy troops in. You would have thought that they would have learned the lesson the first time. But they didn't. And I think that's what wealth can do to us. We get complacent, we get self-confident, and we fall asleep. Unfortunately for the church in that city, same thing happened. They became wealthy, worldly, and they forgot their mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so now Jesus comes to them with a wake-up call and a threat to come like a thief if they don't wake up. So let's read this letter to the church at Sardis and we will draw some practical lessons so that we will not land up like Sardis, a dead church in a wealthy city. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. <clears throat> you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's go into this letter in a little bit more detail. Verse 1a, to the angel in the church of Sardis. This is how all the letters begin, to the angels of the respective churches. We cannot be sure whether these, are, these angels refer to human pastors, human elders, or whether they are divine messengers. But regardless, the fact that these letters were directed to angels immediately lifts the earthly church, lifts the eyes of the earthly church up to heavenly and eternal spiritual realities. Because the church was just too focused on just things of the earth. And the key spiritual reality that confronts this church and the churches, the seven churches, is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 1b, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. So these letters are messages from Jesus Christ himself. They are not words from John the Apostle, not from the elders, not even from the angels himself. They are directly from Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So the implication for the church at Sardis was that they must take these words seriously. They must obey. And what were Jesus' words to this church? Verse 1c, 
I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. No approval at all. Straight into accusation. This is one of the two ugly churches that we have in Revelation. The accusation is this. On the surface, the church appeared to be alive. Lots of activity, but in reality, they were dead. So the admonition to this church is, wake up. This is a wake-up call. They have been complacent and they have fallen asleep in regard to their mission as salt and light to the city. They have not fulfilled their responsibility. They have grown soft and flabby and they have not persevered in their mission. They've just gotten comfortable, self-indulgent, and they stopped serving God. So the appeal then is in verse 2b, strengthen what remains, what is about to die, because their works are incomplete. In other words, they are to continue what they had started, what they had stopped doing. The word incomplete or unfinished means literally unfulfilled. That means they were not seeing the fruit of their ministries because they were just not completing it. They were just stopping. They were not persevering. So they were not fruitful. So verse 3a, what are they supposed to do? Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. The first step towards repentance is always to remember. So remember, they're supposed to remember what they have been taught. Well, how they were supposed to live. Remember that they, are, they were meant to live as disciple makers, not contented consumers in a wealthy city. They must now recognize how far they have fallen short and then change their ways, change their lifestyle, change their values, and then to resume their mission and their work. And then Jesus gives them a very serious threat. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You see, the tragedy for Sardis was that they were not even aware of their situation. They were asleep, thinking that they were doing fine. They could not see the danger they were in. I'm sure Jesus' threat to come against them as a thief was not lost on the church, given the history of the city, right? They were plundered two times by sort of like thieves in the night who came and then opened the doors and let the enemy troops in. They knew their history. But also, just picturing Jesus as an enemy coming against them must have been a powerful jolt to them, a powerful wake-up call. The assurance to the church is that they have a few who have not soiled their garments. By soil of their garments, it's really a picture of adopting the values and the lifestyle of the city. So for the majority, there was no longer any difference between how they lived and how the city lived. But there were a few of them who did not adopt the lifestyles and the values of the city. And the assurance to them is that they will continue to enjoy walking with Jesus. And that's, of course, a metaphor for intimate fellowship with Jesus and partnership with Jesus in his continuing mission in this world. To those who conquer are given three assurances for the future. Conquering in this context is not so much overcoming an external threat. It was largely an internal threat. It was their own tendencies towards complacency, compromise, and self-indulgence that they needed to conquer so that they can continue to live as they should as disciples of Jesus Christ. And the three promises for the future are as follows. First of all, to the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Secondly, I will never blot his name 
out of the book of life. And thirdly, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To be clothed in white garments is really a picture of the scene that we have in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where we see a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hand. It is a picture of the promise being that you will be part of that heavenly congregation of people who will be worshipping Jesus as Lord and as King on that day when we all see Him face to face. Verse 5b, I will never blot His name out of the book of life. So for those who conquer, this is the second promise. The book of life is the book that records the names of those who will inherit eternal life, those who are saved from the second death. So the obvious question is then, can our names be blotted out from this book of life? Because Jesus said, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Well, it depends on whether you're a Calvinist or you're an Armenian. If you're a Calvinist, you will say, of course not. If you're an Armenian, you will say, yes, of course we can. Well, we are good brethren, we are Calvinists, all right? But really, both have strong scriptural base. So, I think it is wise and prudent for us to hold these two truths in tension. What does it mean to hold these two truths in tension, practically speaking, in our Christian lives? I think it means that we should have an assurance without presumption and a holiness without anxiety. What does having an assurance without presumption mean? It means that we can be assured of our salvation when we have exercised faith, we have put our trust in Jesus as our Saviour and as our Lord for this life and for eternity. But to be presumptuous is to say, well, I've said the sinner's prayer, I've been baptised, I have even got my name in the church register, membership register. So now I can do anything I want and then I will enjoy heaven when I get there. You see, salvation is not a series of checkboxes that we can tick to get to heaven. Salvation is a matter of living faith. Faith that reconnects us with our Creator, the fountainhead of life. And as we are reconnected with Jesus Christ, who is life, then that life flows into us. And that life transforms us from one degree of glory to another. On the other hand, we don't need to be worried. I mean, that's holiness without anxiety. That means that we do not need to fret and worry about whether or not we are saved every time we sin, we fall, or we feel distant from God. None of us is perfect. We are not anxious about our salvation because we know that we are held in God's right hand. That's the hand of authority and the hand of strength. And the Bible tells us that no one will be able to snatch us out from the Father's hand. John chapter 10, verse 29. But between presumption and anxiety, the church at Sardis had more problems with being presumptuous. And I think for most of us, perhaps that may be true as well. The third assurance for the future for those who conquer is this. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. What a promise and what an assurance. Wouldn't you like to have your name confessed by Jesus Christ before God the Father and before His angels? I mean, this is something to live for. I'll just use my name. Bui Xing Chuan. Well done, good and faithful servant. Is that not something worth living for? Imagine your name 
being set by the Lord Jesus Christ, declared before God the Father and His angels. This, my friends, is what we want to live for, not the pleasures and treasures of this world. But what is the opposite? The opposite is, depart from me. I never knew you. That scares me. You don't need to be anxious, but it does scare me. Right? So, let's live our lives wisely, prudently, so that we can look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ declaring our names before the Father. Verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the same appeal repeated for all the churches. In other words, don't just hear. Don't just listen. Act on it. Obey. Change your ways. Respond. Repent. So the big question for us, uh, the question for us is, did the church of Sardis wake up? Apparently, they did. You know, we know that they probably did because there is a bishop by the name of Bishop Melito of Sardis who lived in the second century. You know, so the letter to Revelation was written at the end of the first century. Bishop Melito lived a few, or ministered a few decades after that, perhaps, uh, towards the end of the second century. And we know that he was one of the key leaders in the church, in the in, in the. Uh, uh, universal church or the churches around the region during the second century. And he was considered by many to be a godly man uh, who was also a prophet. So there was, and he was leading the church at Sardis. So I think Sardis responded and they turned around and they produced somebody like Bishop Melito. Praise God. What are some practical lessons for us? I think the first thing is we need to recognize complacency and self-indulgence in our own lives. We are vulnerable to be complacent and self-indulgent. Like Sardis, we are a wealthy church in a wealthy city. We may not have gold in Kalang River, <laughs> but we have a GDP amongst the highest in the world. And if we are not careful, wealth has a way of turning us into self-confident, complacent, worldly Christians, self-indulgent consumers rather than witnesses and disciple-makers. And the nature of complacency is such, we are often unaware of it ourselves. We don't see it in ourselves. And the fact that we need to be constantly reminded to wash our hands, Wear our masks if we don't feel well, don't go to work and so on. Take our temperatures means that by nature, we are complacent. Like this man, you know, reading the papers on the railway track with his back facing an oncoming train. Sardis was asleep in the midst of imminent danger. And the truth is for us, to varying degrees, we all get complacent. The Bible has a very graphic description of what complacency is. And it's in the book of Amos. Amos is one of the minor prophets. And the book, and Amos ministered and prophesied during a time when Israel was enjoying peace and prosperity. Just a few decades before it was destroyed by Assyria. I read Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You see, they always, they always go together. When you feel that you are secure, that you can do everything, that you are in control of the situation, that's the beginnings of complacency. And then it takes a virus, something that we can't even see with our naked eye, to realize like what Pastor Chiming reminded us earlier uh, during this uh, service that we are helpless. We cannot depend on ourselves. Verse 4, you lie on beds adorned with ivory. 
You lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine, and not by the cups, but by the bowlfuls. That's indulgence, right? And you use the finest lotions. They all are the same. It's just how much money you pay for the branding, right? But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. So Amos gives us a picture of complacency as living a very self-indulgent, carefree life. By carefree, I mean not caring about anything apart from how to have a good time, how to pleasure my senses through art, through beautiful things, through wine, through food, through songs, through nice skin, through the lotions, and so on. I buy a decorated, I buy a bed decorated with expensive ivory simply because it gives me pleasure. I can afford it. I worked hard for it. I'm entitled to something like that. So, I buy it. It's that kind of attitude. The poor, the moral decay in the nation, not my problem. They have agencies. They have religious leaders to take care of those kinds of things. You see, I am living my life complacently when I live my life with the primary aim of pleasing myself without recognizing my responsibilities, my mission, my purpose in this world. You can replace decorated bits de decorated with ivory, lounging on couches, with upgrading phones every year, extravagant dinners and vacations, binging on TV serials and Netflix, and so on. Don't feel guilty. I use these examples because I'm guilty of them. I like new technology. Well, maybe I should say I used to be guilty. <laughs> I'm still working on some of them. I like new technology, right? New phones, faster, better cameras, better lenses. I can afford to upgrade my phone every year. Buy camera, better cameras and better lenses so I can take better photos. I enjoy that. That's my hobby. Nothing wrong with hobbies and things that you enjoy. Right? But there is a line, I think, between indulgence and enjoying what God provides for you. That line, you have to examine yourself before God. How do I examine or how should I examine myself? Do I really need to upgrade my phone every year? Do I really need that lens or that camera when I only use it a couple times a year? And the question for me that I need to consider is, is there something that I value more than that fast lens or that new phone? What is my value? How do I value things? Where do I invest my resources in? Same for how I spend my time. In fact, actually, time is the most valuable resource we have on this earth. When your time is up, your time is up. So how am I investing this resource? Of course, I need time to rest, unwind, and so on. But if I spend excessive amounts of time binging on TV serials and Netflix and so on, what that means is that I am putting the value of my own entertainment and ple pleasing my senses higher on my list of priorities than other things like developing relationships with my neighbours, with my friends, so that I can have the opportunity to share with them that good news of the gospel that has been entrusted to me. Or, for that matter, praying for church, serving others, visiting the sick. There's so many things that we can spend our time more of, uh, in, in a better way that will bring more value. See, how we spend our time and our money reflects what we really value 
in life, what our priorities are. To be complacent then is to forget that there are more important priorities in this life than pleasuring my senses. It is to forget that we have responsibilities and a mission in this life. It is to forget that this life is not all there is to live for. So let's recognize our tendency towards complacency and its twin self-indulgence. These tendencies are used by the devil to kill our spiritual lives, to render us ineffective as disciples of Christ. So recognize that there is a battle going on for each of our souls. That's why 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 exhorts us, Be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, as we are constantly reminded to be alert, not to be complacent in this at this time and during this crisis, all the more we need to learn this lesson that we cannot be complacent spiritually as well because the, the consequences of spiritual complacency is even more dire than complacency currently in this crisis. The second thing is that we remember and we repent. If we recognize that we have been complacent and self-indulgent, then let us remember. That's the first step towards repentance. What do we remember? We remember what we are called to be and what we are called to do. So what are we called to be and do? We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And what, are we, what is our mission as disciples? We are to make disciples of all nations. And if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we march to a different drumbeat from the world. We march to the drumbeat of Jesus Christ because He's our Lord. We are His disciples. If we are to march to the drumbeat of the world, then we follow the ways of the world. And what, how does the world, what does the world celebrate? What does the world applaud? It applauds us when we consume, right? Because that's what makes the world go round. It's consuming, consuming. And the more we consume, the more it celebrates because trade goes round. Bigger cars, more expensive cars, newer, fancier technology, more exciting entertainment. Nothing wrong with these things in themselves. But if we are not careful, we become consumers indulges into these things that trap us. What should we applaud as disciples of Jesus Christ in our lives? What should we celebrate? How does the Bible describe the Christian life? Well, I have a few listed here, and you can probably think of more. Salt, light, pilgrim, athlete, soldier, builder, fruit-bearing, Sheep, seed, kernel of wheat, part of a body. What do all these things talk about? They speak either about witness, perseverance, diligence, hard work, training, fight, war, discipline, obedience, fellowship, dying to self, living for others, making disciples. So we march to a different beat when we value and we celebrate that we have become more faithful pilgrims, wiser and more diligent builders of God's kingdom, better athletes, more vigilant soldiers, more fruitful trees, more obedient sheep, more willing to die to self so that we can better serve others, more effective disciple-makers. That's what we should be celebrating. Not the house we live in, the condos we live in, the cars we drive, and so on. We march to a different beat when we react to crisis differently from the world. This slide shows our Christian brothers, what our Christian brothers and sisters doing in Wuhan. I got this from a blog 
on 7th February from Heart Cry Missionary Society. They were giving out, it's raining, so they're wearing this. They're giving out, Christians are giving out the gospel, sharing the gospel, and they are handing out masks at the same time. Masks in Wuhan during this time. And now, it's more precious, are more precious than gold. You cannot buy them. But these Christians are giving them out and at the same time giving the gospel. You know, this act of kindness and courage softened the hearts of the policemen who were before arresting these same Christians for sharing the gospel. They are now willing to listen to the gospel and, of course, to receive the mass. <laughs> what about us? Can we be alert to the opportunity to have meaningful conversations with our non-Christian friends on matters of faith, hope, and peace in times like this? Are we doing like what this blog says, what a true Christian should do in a situation like this? Preaching the gospel and bearing witness of true peace, true hope that come from Jesus Christ. You see, we are in a crisis. But this is the time to live out our faith. And we live it out with courage, with compassion, and with hope to demonstrate that we have the living hope, we have true peace, and not to cower in fear. The third thing that we can do is that we redouble our energies and we complete the mission to make disciples and to build God's kingdom. Complete the work. All of us here who are Christians have a work that is assigned to us. We are all part of the body. Every part of the body has a function. There is a task for us. So live for what truly matters. Build the body, build the kingdom. Don't stop serving like the church in Sardis. They were in, their works were found to be incomplete and they were unfruitful. I see several of you here who are about my age. <laughs> so let me share this with you. In the language of John Bunyan, Right? Don't get stuck on enchanted ground. Enchanted ground is this place of pilgrimage as Christian's wife passes through on the way to the celestial city, which is heaven. It's a place that tempts us to just rest and sleep because we are weary. But those who get stuck here fall fast asleep and it's almost impossible to wake them up. Enchanted ground is strategically placed at the end of our journey, maybe the final season of our lives, where we are most likely to be weary. When we've been Christians for many years, when we've served many years, we feel weary, we feel tired, we feel that we are entitled to rest. Let the younger ones all here take over part of leadership succession, right? We have done our share. It's time for us to retire. I confess, I've had that thought in my mind for a long, long time. <laughs> All of us have a tendency to feel like that. But I like this prayer. So after this prayer of this psalmist, I'm otherwise. <laughs> I like this prayer of this psalmist. I share with you. Psalm 71 Verse 17 and 18. Oh God, you have taught me from my earliest childhood. And I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. Now that I am old and grey, so for me, bald, right? Do not abandon me, oh God. Why don't abandon me? Not so much that, you know, I, I feel, but so that I can continue to proclaim your power to this new generation. Your mighty miracles to all 
to come after me. This is the desire of the psalmist, and I pray for this kind of attitude for myself. Because, you know, the older we are, actually the more stories we have to tell of God's power and miracles at work in our lives, simply because we have lived longer. So don't waste the work of God in your lives. You have to share it with the next generation. The young adults, the youth, our children, our grandchildren. So for those who have been serving faithfully, continue to do that good work. Don't just pass on your role, your ministry, and then stop. Take on something else. There is so, still so much we can do to proclaim the power of God to a new generation. How we serve God will change as we go through different seasons of our lives. But as long as God gives us breath, there is a work with our name on it. We just need to be willing and open and God will show us what we can do. For the younger ones here who may feel, oh, you know, I don't have that gift and I need to discover my gifts first before I serve, no need. No need to think so hard about what my gift is so that I can serve in that particular area. i give you an example. Grace, my wife, is my CG leader. She became a CG leader not because she felt oh, she has been gifted to become a CG leader. No, she did it because there was no one else at that time. As a CG, we had disbanded for some time. No one, because you know, no one was willing, the, the CG leader, our previous CG leader stepped down, then no one was prepared to take on the job. So we disbanded for a period until she felt that no, we needed one another as a CG. So reluctantly, hesitantly, she took on the job. I tell you, after she took on the job, she's not here, but I shared this in the first service, so she, and I got her permission to share. I witnessed gifts in her life that I had not witnessed before. So as I say in the first service, I have to be very careful when I say this. <laughs> You mean you never see me properly? <laughs> you never saw all those gifts? Thoughtful leadership, ability to bond us together, insightful sharing, wise counsel, and so on. My point is, she did not wait for the gifts and then serve, or say, ah, I am not ready to serve. She served, and God gave and developed the gifts in her. And this is one of the best ways, young people, to discover what your gifts are. Serve, right? And if God has given you that gift, you will see the fruit in your ministry. If God has given you something else, you see, oh, maybe it's not so fruitful. Go and do something else. Discover your gifts as you serve. Don't wait. The other thing, don't see serving, working, for God as a chore or even an obligation. Oh, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, I have to serve. It's a privilege, an honour to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our hands will be strengthened and our hearts encouraged to stay faithful, to invest our time, our money wisely when we wake up to the reality, the truth, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, before whom all creation, all humanity, all of us will one day bow before and say and declare that He is worthy. That's why the letters to the seven churches are bracketed by John's vision of the magnificence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a magnificence and a glory that no human tongue or pen can adequately describe, but John tried. He did it in Revelation chapter 1, and he did it 
in Revelation chapter 5. The first time John saw that vision, what happened? He fell at the feet of Jesus as though dead because he was awestruck, totally overwhelmed by the immensity of Jesus' magnificence and glory. Second time, what happened? The whole host he saw of heaven and all creation on earth and in the sea falling down before Jesus, worshipping him, proclaiming that he is worthy of everything. Worthy to open the scroll, which means that he is sovereign over all the affairs on earth. Worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's like, wow, he's running out of adjectives. That's how worthy the Lord Jesus Christ is. We too will experience that ourselves when we see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, his full glory. But for now, we read our Bibles every day and we discover the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above all earthly things. Because that's what the Bible is all about. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we know our Bible, the more of that glory and the magnificence of Jesus we will, we will see and learn. And then we will consider it a privilege to serve Him, to work with Him, to spend our money, our time, our resources, our talents, our careers on His priorities. Because the fact of the matter is Jesus is worth more, much, much more than any earthly treasure or pleasure. But there is another motivation for us to stay faithful, to stay sober, and to stay alert to the wiles of the devil. I'm behind. Oh, sorry, I'm going the other way. Sorry. And that is, we wake up to eternal consequences. There are eternal consequences for how we choose to live our lives on earth. Our names are either in the book of life or it's not in the book of life. Jesus will either confess our names before the Father and before his angels, or he will tell us he never knew us. How we behave, how we live our lives, what we value, what our priorities are, all have eternal consequences. So let's live our lives carefully, prudently, wisely, and let's be alert to the dangers that complacency can kill our spiritual lives. Let me end with this emotional appeal. <laughs> this is a slide that I uh, got from a newsletter written by Singapore Bible College by Dr. Peter Ho. And it is how we trap a monkey, the South Indian way. Well, you take a coconut, you bore a hole in it, just enough for the hand of the monkey to slip in, right? You drain the juice, you hollow it up, and then you chain the coconut down. And then you place some rice inside the coconut as bait. So the monkey, when he sees the rice inside the coconut, he'll slip his hand into the coconut, right? And he'll grab the rice. When he grabs the rice, that clenched fist now is big, right? It's not... No, he refused to let go. His fanfish is big. He cannot pull his hand out. It will be stuck in the coconut. And since the coconut is chained, he's trapped. Robert Persick wrote about this story in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And he says, the monkey reaches in and is suddenly trapped by nothing more than his own value rigidity. He can't revalue the rice. He can't see that freedom without the rice is more valuable than capture with the rice. For us Christians, that rice in the coconut is the treasures of this world. And the question for us is, is Jesus 
of more value, more worth than the rice in the coconut. You see? Of course he is, right? Of course he is worth. Salvation is free by the grace of God. But discipleship will cost us everything. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And as disciples, we are called to renounce everything. So let go of that rice. Let go of those earthly treasures and pleasures so that Jesus can fill our hands with eternal treasures far more glorious than all the temporal treasures and pleasures we can set our eyes on. Live for what truly matters. Will we respond like the church in Sardis? This is the wake-up call for us individually as Christians. We want to say to Jesus, yes, you are worthy of everything. And we remember what our mission is so that we can be faithful disciples so that He can give us those treasures, eternal treasures that are of far greater value than whatever we can have on earth. You see, Jesus doesn't want to deny us our pleasures, but He knows that these treasures and pleasures that we have that attracts us so much, that binds us, are nothing compared to what He wants to give to us. So let go of that so that He can give you true treasures and pleasures. Shall we sing the last stanza of that song? And then let's take this time to respond. And we can respond like this. Let us first repent of our self-indulgent ways, our complacency, our reluctance to build God's kingdom, our reluctance as His witnesses. He has entrusted the life-giving gospel to us. What are we doing with it? And then we recalibrate our values. We release that grass that we have on this rice in the coconut so that we can embrace the treasures and the pleasures that He wants to give to us. And then we refocus again. We cast our eyes again on the glory and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ because He is worth living for. And then we redouble our energies. Whatever season of life you may be in, young, old, we redouble our energies and we play our part in building His kingdom for God's glory. Shall we rise and shall we sing this song together? Just the... Yeah, not I. The, Let's go to verse 4. Yeah, the, the final verse. With every breath. Yes, with every breath. And let this be our prayer. Right? That we want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ because He is worthy. Shall we sing? With every breath I long to follow Jesus for He has said If this is that he your desire and your prayer today, let's come to the front and, and let's have this time and we can respond to God.
we'll sing that again and let's take this time and if God has spoken to you and that you want to use this time to respond to Him and say, I want to live for you. Because you are worthy of my life. Yes, Father, we pray, God, that you will open our eyes again to see your glory so that we will count it a privilege and an honour to live for you. I pray for all the young people who are here. Lord, they have a whole life in front of them. There will be many roads that they will choose. Treasures of this world, eternal treasures. Marching to the beat of this world or the beat of the Lord Jesus God. Careers that they will choose. The places they will go. Company they keep. The treasures that they seek. God, I pray that their vision will be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And I pray, God, that you will be their guiding light, that they will make you their supreme worth in life, that they will count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That they will be prepared to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that they may gain you and that they may be found in you. And so I pray, Lord, that even as these young people are here right in front, recommitting our lives together. I pray, God, that you will hear their heart cry and you will respond to their desire with your grace, your strength, and that you will fill their hearts, their lives with eternal pleasures and eternal treasures because they have chosen to make you their Lord, their God, and that they are following this path of discipleship seriously. So Father, I commit them to you. I commit each one that is present here 
today to you. I pray, God, that you will continue to speak your words to us. And I pray, God, that you will open our eyes to what you want to do in our lives and through our lives. Refresh for us your mission for us. And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God, our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. May the Lord bless us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.